If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Medicine, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Claire Clark, one of the hosts of the channel, and today we're talking to Christopher D.E. Willoughby. Um, Dr. Willoughby is a visiting assistant professor of the history of medicine and health at Pitzer College, and he is the author of the brand new book, Masters of Health, Racial Science and Slavery in U.S. Medical Schools, which is just out from the University of North Carolina Press hot off the presses. Um, He is also the editor of the book, Medicine and Healing in the Age of Slavery. And we are just thrilled to have him on the show today. Chris, welcome. Thank you for having me. I wonder if you could begin our interview by telling us a little bit about yourself. So, um, well, I started off on this project. Weirdly, I'm not going to speak too much about being an undergraduate, but the College of Charleston. And I had a mentor there, uh, Peter McCandless, who's written about the history of uh, psychiatric care in the South, and and then wrote his last book on slavery and health. And ironically, other than just learning how to be a good historian and being a research assistant for him, I didn't actually start working on the history of medicine until graduate school at Tulane University. Um, but in in college of Charles at College of Charleston, I started looking at racial science texts and started really thinking deeply about what, what, why is racial science so compelling? What did it mean to Southerners and pro-slavery advocates? And then my, my graduate training made me start thinking a little bit more nationally about it. So at Tulane, I started working on the history of medicine component as well. My advisor, Randy, was a, is a transnational historian of slavery. So that very much has shaped my approach. But on the other hand, we in some ways couldn't be more different. He's a social historian of everyday people in the enslaved societies, whereas a lot of this book focuses on elite uh, white physicians and their racial constructs. But at Tulane, I got the tools to be a good transnational historian. And it's also where I met another mentor and reminder that their mentors often are not always just in your graduate program, but that's Deirdre Cooper Owens. And uh, she and I started working together uh, fairly early in grad school, and she was on my dissertation committee and really helped me start seeing this story of medicine, racial science, and slavery as, as a national phenomena, um, where physicians in New York, like people she studied, J. Marion Sims, who lives in both the South and in New York, conducted racist experiments on people. And so... That foundation of looking at Southern history 
the history of racism as both a national issue and an issue that affects medical institutions. Um, that, that is something I started to really develop uh, in grad school and with uh, a, two, two really important mentors in my advisor, uh, Randy Sparks and uh, uh, Deirdre Cooper Owens. Well, what a wonderful mentorship team. Um, tell us about Masters of Health. Tell us about this book. Um, how did you come to write it? Well, it, like so many other first academic books, it does start as a dissertation. Um, that was a pretty narrow uh, history of racial science in medical schools from 1820 to 1860. And uh, what what I think was successful about the dissertation was this national orientation, but I also found that I really wanted to write a more expansive project. Um, so early on when I was doing research for the, for the book and for the dissertation, I found these medical student dissertations on the subject of polygenesis. And it's such a, to me, a critical point and a point that I, I try and draw out throughout the book is that Racial science was not just being written about or taught about by the most elite physicians or just by kind of pro-slavery, we might say, yahoos like a John C. Calhoun, who was really just the, you know, the most legitimate of a much weirder tier of people underneath him. Um, so I was very interested in what did the average medical student think about race? How can we get at that question? So medical student theses and medical dissertations were a really critical step in mapping out what is and what was a very well entrenched by the end of the period I study. So that's 1765 to 1860, roughly. Um, a very well entrenched racial curriculum in medical schools that develops, particularly the, the development of it accelerates in the antebellum era, but goes back to the founding of the first medical school. So these dissertations tell us that medical students were interested in how to treat uh, enslaved people, the, the effects of the environment on enslaved people or people of African descent's bodies. And finally, um, their perception that people of African descent had anatomically distinct bodies. And what we also see is that this was not just the kind of fantasies of a 20-year-old. I mean, they are fantasies, but that these were a deep entrenched part of the medical curriculum. And then finally, in the book, uh, from dissertation to book, I also really emphasized the role of medical museums in drawing in an international array of human remains to create racial skull collections in medical schools that students could then measure themselves, practice racial science on, themse on themselves, and also, um, in a strange way, attach the students to a much more international set of racial concerns. So, um, as, as I said, the dissertation very much oriented towards a national story in a, a fairly short time period. And in the book, I really tried to expand out to think about how American slavery, American racial science, both has origins well into the 18th century um, uh, and does not just kind of appear during the pro-slavery, uh, you know, active pro-slavery era of the 1830s, 40s, and 50s, um, but also that as the U.S. was becoming a more internationally engaged country in its kind of development, it also uh, students were 
connecting with and using human remains to study race uh, or what they perceived as racial differences around the world. We're going to dig in, into some of these sources in a little bit more detail. I, I, I really want to hear about these these MD theses and um, the uh, human remains and medical schools, skull collections and museums. Some you get into some some pretty disturbing stuff. But um, but before before we do that, can we? I wondered if we could just kind of zoom out a little bit and you could give us a concise. Um, discussion of the overall argument of the book. So what's kind of, what's the take home message of Masters of Health? Um, sure. So the, the biggest, you know, if we we're going to put the kind of flashing lights above the entrance to my disturbing uh, book, um, it would be racial thinking underwrote the rise of the medical profession in the United States. And, and what do I mean by that? So um, a critical uh, aspect of American medical education, American medical schools, is they develop and start developing right at the beginning of the international abolition movement. Um, in 1765, when Benjamin Rush, uh, the University of Pennsylvania professor, Declaration of Independence uh, signer, when he when he's promoting abolition and thinking about race in the 1760s and 1770s, it really is possible to see an end of slavery. The kind of cotton boom in the 1790s after the invention of the cotton gin will change that, and slavery will, of course, re-expand. But during that initial period, a major discourse over abolition emerges. And so there is a debate over slavery for the next century as medical schools begin to emerge and proliferate across the United States. Now, the other side of this is that medical the medical profession is um, in a distinct period of crisis and competition during this period. They are trying to establish legitimacy while competing with homeopaths, osteopaths, um, everyday, um, what we might think of everyday healers, as well as people advocating for self-healing. Um, so having an expertise on race in a society, kind of in the process for 50, 60 years of various times tearing itself apart and bringing itself back together over the question of slavery and the underlying premise of uh, white or underlying um, kind of structure of white supremacy that uh, justifies slavery. This is a very powerful tool. Um, And it really helps schools like the University of Pennsylvania, the first medical school, become the dominant school in medical education in for much of the, you know, first hundred years of American medical education and even beyond. Um, so why, why is this? Well, the University of Pennsylvania has the largest student bodies. By the 1850s, that's over 400 students some years. These student bodies are all half Southern, half Northern. So it brings together and creates a national medical profession, even as the United States is nationally in a state of rupture. Um, so you'd see Southern booster uh, medical, um, 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 Southern booster doctors claiming that, uh, Northern medical schools don't teach racial difference. And then Southern medical alumni would say there's nothing further from the truth. So what I, what I show is that racial thinking was a critical piece in creating a nationally cohesive medical profession in a time period where the United States was not nationally cohesive. 
Um, and that medical profession will survive the Civil War uh, and um, continue to grow today, even as, you know, thankfully, there have been some reforms, but still much work to be done on the issue of racism in medicine. Well, give us a little overview of the book, because it's got a three-part structure. So um, what, what, are, what do each of the three sections deal with? So the first part of the book really tracks the emergence of two, two, two things. Um, and that's the first, the dominance of the theory of polygenesis, which we're going to get into a little bit later. Mm-hmm. But um, that is basically this idea that each human race, quote unquote, you know, race is obviously a scientifically flawed, um, if not discredited concept, but each human race is a distinct species created for distinct climates and environments. Um, and this for, you know, much of the previous, we'll say almost 2000 years of the history of Christendom was a heretical belief compared to the belief that all humans derive from Adam and Eve or basically monogenesis. Um, so, and then the second key uh, feature is the rise of the medical school for the first you know, much of the colonial era of the Americas, all medical training was done by apprenticeships. Therefore, students were, um, had a very idiosyncratic set of beliefs. So once in the medical school, teaching a racial science oriented version of the body of human difference allows for, um, I argue in part one, for mass proliferation of, uh, ideas about racial difference and the promotion of this way of seeing racial difference I call the clinical racial gaze or the kind of confluence of anatomical ways of seeing the body and racial ways or the slaveholders way of seeing the body of analyzing a body for whipping scars to see if someone has misbehaved or is an unruly enslaved person. This can intersect in disturbing ways with cutting open a body to see pathology or um, gross anatomy, the kind of literal geography of the internal of the internals of the body, and then part two examines how this education was disturbingly practical, uh, disturbingly hands-on. Um, so I look at the rise of body snatching um, and how, uh, particularly in the South, uh, enslaved people were the core uh, constituency to have their bodies stolen to be dissection material. And in the North, um, black people were disproportionately had their bodies stolen and dissected by medical students. Um, I also unpack uh, cases of experiments on live subjects that were done by medical students. And these were in some ways quite different from what we might think of uh, as, you know, therapeutic surgical experimentation. These had no therapeutic value, but rather risk the life of enslaved people um, without, at risk the life of enslaved people for, but did not in any way try to save them or repair their bodies. So in one case, I look at a um, woman who had tobacco rubbed all over her body and to induce tobacco toxicity or uh, nicotine toxicity. Um, and then was forced to breastfeed a child to the point to where the infant nearly died. Um, and so the student, though, was not failed. They were not banned from medical school, but rather they graduated and moved on with their life and practiced. Um, and then finally, I look at 
the different ways that anatomy was taught, uh, or racial differences, anatomical differences were taught from medical lectures first, or no, medical textbooks first, and then faculty uh, did elaborate lectures um, about racial difference with visual aids, passing around human remains. And then third, students could then go into those medical museums themselves, measure skulls for their for themselves. Um, and fourth, students might write about, uh, write about racial difference and anatomical difference in their theses. So part two really shows that this kind of white supremacist medicine was not just learned in a rote fashion, but was, was also learned through the actions and everyday uh, behavior of medical students and the pedagogy in the medical school. And then finally, part three is where we really look at the medical school as a part of a globalizing, the American medical school as a part of a increasingly globalizing society. So first I, I examine how imperialism em- enabled the creation of these global school collections, connecting students to uh, locales around the world uh, with body parts coming from West Africa, South Asia, um, South America, um, in some cases, you know, the heads of mummies stolen from Egyptian tombs. Um, but it, it helps students develop a, an outlook where they compare the racial paradigms, be it Native American extermination or enslavement in the South, to European imperialism around the world and the racial constructs that European imperialists are creating during this time period. And additionally, and elsewhere, kind of building on this theme, I look at how data from imperial locations, particularly about mortality data to certain diseases that are broken up by race, was used to think about how the U.S. should potentially create, um, first, internally, um, kind of one might think of it racial public health laws to either keep slavery in the South or prevent uh, free people of color from entering into northern states, the idea being, I mean, the idea being from these uh, racist doctors, of course, that northern cold climates would um, first potentially cause enslaved people to go insane. This was a a belief that was um, perpetuated by the just since discredited census of 1840 that showed higher rates of uh, mania, as would have been the term at the time, of among black people in the North, but that was discredited in its own time, but doctors continued to state, restate that. And then also that the health concerns, be they pneumonia, tuberculosis, that black people's bodies were more poorly adapted to health in the North. Um, and so on the one hand, this environmental data and comparative data uh, essentially justifies uh, slavery as a public health, a racial public health program. And then second, uh, physicians began to use this international data to think about whether or not the U.S. should become an expansive overseas empire itself. Um, And then finally, another critical theme in part three are counter narratives of individual people who were racialized by 19th century physicians. Um, So in one case, I discuss the kind of story of an enslaved Brazilian rebel whose skull ends up at Harvard's medical school. And he's a a participant, uh, potentially a street-level leader in the 1835 uh, 
Malay Revolt and Muslim Uprising in Bahia, one of the largest slave revolts in Brazilian history. So part three really takes the national story of everyday training and the emergence of the medical school that's in part one and part two, and shows how these ideologies are shaped by a increasingly international and even global set of forces and ideas about race, um, and that then American racial science is also being applied to think about American foreign policy, what it means to be a white supremacist nation in a uh, in a global, increasingly globally interconnected society. So th- this this stuff is this is really uh, disturbing reading. I I, I you know have to tell our listeners it's um, it's it's difficult stuff to process, um, and I imagine that it was. Um, really difficult. It was difficult to research as well. Um, the evidence base that you marshal here is just is so impressive. You draw on a wealth of primary sources, institutional archives, museums, published scientific literature, correspondence, teaching material, materials, lecture notes, and the, uh, these MD theses that, that you mentioned, which um, I imagine are very challenging reading. Um, I wondered if you could talk a little bit about what it was like excavating and processing this difficult material over the period of so many years. So this is your dissertation and then became a book. You've been sort of, you've been living with this history for a while. Yeah. My first um, trip into the archives to look at MDPCs was in 2011. So it's, it's been a, an 11 year, uh, more than a decade of of thinking about this. Um, And it was, it's, Doing this kind of research uh, and finding this this kind of subterranean story uh, of racist medicine, and in some ways it was subterranean, in some ways it's it's on the surface. It took a, a long time. I spent ten months, you know, kind of forty hours a week at the Medical University of South Carolina's Waring Historical Library and the University of Pennsylvania's Kislak Center, uh, where the two main uh, bodies of theses I looked at, reading these more than four thousand dissertations. And I would describe it as, um, you know, long periods of time looking through some of the most poorly written, you know, student papers you've ever read, then articulated by moments of of true horror. I I can remember sitting in the Waring Historical Library. Uh, It's a a very small library. For some reason, I was in the second floor, which is not usually used sitting alone. When I came across one of the most disturbing aspects of the book, which is uh, a case where a student deliberately infects an enslaved person with malaria. And I I just kind of, you know, sat there with my breath taken away, not sure what to do um, other than eventually start taking notes. But yeah, it's, it's been a, it's been an interesting trip because I'm the, the initially I was writing this, I think, during the Obama era, when it felt like a book about the rise of technocratic racism. Um, and then the Trump era, the alt-right people literally started reviving these racial ideas. Um, some of them, you know, even citing some of the racial scientists that I discuss from the 1850s. So it then took on a different kind of horror of far to not just a, a kind of analog or, or prehistory of the problems of technocratic, well, we might even say liberal racism today, um, and to really thinking about 
how much these these ideas, this kind of white supremacy is still profoundly, I mean, this even the skull measuring has not left American intellectual culture as much as we might wish it had. Um, and then the, the second moment that really stood out was looking at museum records of, of the skull collection at Harvard. Um, and what stood out to me there was, well, both, you know, starting to think more and more, the more I studied skull collections, you start realizing these are hundreds, thousands of people's lives that were ended in some way, form or fashion, but that are often invisibilized by the presentation of, of, of them. And so starting to find stories of people and how they died, that was another really kind of difficult moment to sit with in, in the archive alone. And then I would say the other f- final thing that I think is both was so illuminating, but once again, really difficult is early on, uh, I started looking at, and I've always loved uh, reading historical correspondence. You can tell a lot about people, but I think when I started reading about the history of racial science, it felt really comforting to think of it as a Southern pro-slavery movement. And correspondence Mm -hmm. networks tell a very different story. They tell a a story of the most elite physicians in the U.S., um, be they faculty at Harvard, the University of Pennsylvania, at Columbia University, at um, now New York University, being tightly wound with the kind of Josiah Knott, a founder of the University of Alabama at Birmingham's medical school, what's in, or what is now that medical school, who is often considered much more of this kind of pro-slavery pseudoscientist. And I, I should say I'm using pseudoscientists in scare quotes, um, but that this was a truly national uh, story that was driven driven as, as, mu- as much or more from the top down um, and not just by people with a direct vested economic interest in slavery. Well, two of the key concepts in the story you tell are um, monogenesis and polygenesis. Um, tell us a little bit about them. What What is monogenesis and what's polygenesis and how did polygenesis shape medical education? Yeah. Um, so monogenesis, I know I mentioned it earlier, but these are obviously much more complicated theories, but monogenesis dates back to essentially biblical creation. Um, and it's, you know, what the main churches, the Catholic church, the Protestant church, these are the enshrined idea of imbuing human history in the, by the, you know, where my book focuses in the 18th and even 19th century. Um, it also, generally speaking, monogenous then had to explain racial difference through environmental change. People's bodies were shaped by by the environments they lived. Uh, somebody like John Bachman, a uh, pro-slavery monogenist from South Carolina in the 1840s and 1850s, and a reverend, we should note, and a, and a collaborator of John James Audubon, he argued that racial difference was not uh, caused by biblical creation, but by a process akin to um, what he's animal domestication. So that would be the kind of academic version of monogenesis is that different skin colors, different potentially uh, morphologies. Some monogenists were uh, believed in more racial differences and were closer to polygenous. And some were, we might say, kind of skin deep monogenous. 
And then second, polygenesis, which has a really, it's a very interesting history because it's, it has this very brief window of being the preeminent explanation of human origins um, in between kind of 1840 and 1859. That's in between, you know, when, when they become ascendant and when Darwin publishes on the origin of the species. And so polygenesis argues that each race um, was created for um, a, each race was created for a different geographic location by God at the point of, uh, you know, at the point of human or, uh, the, or the origins of the world. Um, and they argue that skull measuring, uh, basically the cranial capacity, the internal capacity of a human skull, uh, statistically collated, um, div- uh, kind of correlates to these original five creations there. Those five you know, racial groups are typically Native American, African, European, um, you might say East Asian, and um, Pacific Islander. And then groups like South Asians can kind of go in different categories in different periods. Same with Egyptians. Um, and North Africans. Um, so people from kind of what we might think of the Middle East and Central Asia are sometimes included in Europeans and sometimes included in Asia. Um, but polygenesis is really important because its core method is anatomical in nature, skull measuring, collecting of human remains. Um, and the first half of the 19th century is often considered the anatomical era in medicine. So these two theories and way of understanding the body through anatomy create natural bedfellows in American medical education and even in the medicine of the Atlantic world. Um, Masters of Health argues that medical education in Northern and Southern medical schools was white supremacist and that racist educational practices had roots in some of the country's oldest and most prestigious colleges of medicine. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about what Northern and Southern medical education shared in common and then how they differed. This is one of the more provocative claims of your book, of the book, I think. How, how, how similar they were. Yeah, I guess I think I went in. I, I mean, the sad irony is I went in with a, this is a, a case where the archive really shaped the book. I went in with a different hypothesis. I was expecting similarity, certainly, but not nearly as much as uh, as as was the case. So I think where we we see um, similarities uh, first, both you know both both schools relied on uh, stolen bodies um, and disproportionately uh, black bodies uh, or the bodies of black people, I should say. Um, and there are differences in this case where uh, in a place like Boston, the, the black population was simply not large enough to have a preponderance of Harvard's anatomical material come from black people. Um, and I think we most likely would have to say the same thing about Philadelphia and even New York City, even though they had larger African-American populations. Um, but both stole black bodies and black people's bodies and we know that um, they were to a disproportionate degree uh, in, in the North. Um, and likewise, that they all, you know, kind of viewed body snatching as uh, defined through 
a social ladder. So you attack or prey on the poorest, weakest people in society, which is always black people, but then moving up to in somewhere like New York and Philadelphia, Irish immigrants, poor whites who end up in the poor house. Um, so where they differed was not so much in ideology, but in practicality is that Southern schools had a massive enslaved population. They literally like the medical university of South or what's now the medical university of South Carolina and previously the medical college of South Carolina literally bragged about using enslaved people for anatomical material saying it was the most affordable um, dissection program in the country. Um, whereas Northern schools could not just simply as a matter of practical uh, life could not do that. Um, so that's one difference and similarity. They both shared a preponderance for measuring skulls for teaching students a basically polygenesis way of seeing the body and seeing racial difference. Um, they both displayed human remains and racialized human remains in their museums. And they both compared black people to animals, uh, in their curriculum and in their writing. So, uh, a figure like um, John Collins Warren, the professor of anatomy at Harvard through much of the antebellum era. Um, he, uh, we know through correspondence, uh, actually discussing his lectures, that um, he said that uh, people of African descent, they had longer arms like apes, um, for example. And this was definitely uh, an idea that one can see in Southern racial science and to some extent in Southern medical education. Uh, Northern schools also at the University of Pennsylvania, we have some evidence they taught practical ideas about slave management for physicians. So how to um, check for uh, an enslaved person potentially feigning illness. Um, you know, just as often, we should say, uh, enslaved people were not actually feigning illness, but paranoid enslavers were um, so afraid that they might lose a little money that they um, would, um, you know, kind of interrogate and potentially abuse, beat and whip them to see if they were ill. Um, and this was taught as a normal practice at northern, at least some northern medical schools and southern medical schools. Um, and one other kind of final difference, I've mentioned a few experiments on enslaved people's bodies. This is something where it's once again, it's not so much that we don't know whether or not Northern schools would have condoned this or not, but they did not have access to enslaved people um, overall. So Southern schools, you, I found two cases where students conducted life-threatening experiments on enslaved people. Um, and in Northern schools, I never found uh, such a, a case, but that is quite different because enslaved people versus free black people in the North Enslaved people don't have legal rights. They can't go to take a medical student to courts. Not, and so there are greater repercussions in the North. And so you are actually having to navigate a social plane where people of African descent, while they're certainly heavily subordinated, most subordinated, probably underclass in the, in the region, um, they are not, they do have some legal rights. And so there were some limits in Northern schools, what you could do versus Southern schools or what a physician could do, I should say. Sure. Um, thank you. It's, uh, uh, yeah, um, not easy reading. Um, I 
I wondered if you you could you you write about um, how human remains, such as medical school skull collections, were used to advance racial science and medical edu- education. And one of the things you do really skillfully as a historian is to take um, ex- some examples of these medical remains and then give us the full human story of um, the people behind them. And I wondered if you could give us just a little bit of a flavor of that. Um, tell if you could tell us about um, one of those examples you provide. Um, my suggestion was was maybe an African man named Sturman, but you 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 can choose. Tell us uh, tell us about um, the the human beings behind the sort of artifacts that are are housed in these um, medical schools collections. And I should say I was. This is one of those. It was very hard for me to write. And very difficult for me to wrap my head around how to write this. And I was very lucky to work on this chapter at, at the uh, Schomburg Center for Research in Black Culture. And my, my cohort of fellow scholars and the, the leadership there were really helpful because I found this it both kind of emotionally and intellectually, just it, it was going into a different realm from what I'm used to, which is, you know, as, as you can probably tell from the interview, studying the letters and teachings of terrible white racist professors are very for disturbing people. And Stormon was quite the opposite. He is, I mean, he, he's exercising agency, but he's very much um, also, uh, you know, in some ways a victim of, of this science, even as he is trying to constantly reshape his life. But Stormon was a teenager in Boston uh, when he took his own life uh, by hanging. But his whole story, I, I take us back to, as, as best we can tell from his childhood, he grew up in a place that the British Empire had, and, and the Dutch Empire, I should say, had disrupted for more than a century. And that's the northern cape of southern Africa, what's now kind of an area called Little Namaqualand, which is roughly the border of Namibia and South Africa. And Stormon's people, they were kind of Khoi Khoi people traditionally, uh, cattle herders and had been displaced from their land for that pre during that previous century. And by the time he's growing up, they've kind of become hunters and gatherers. And he ends up as a teenager trekking from Western South Africa today to Eastern South Africa, where he gets, meets a man um, who, you know, invites him to uh, come to Boston to make lots of money, quote unquote, or I mean, paraphrasing, that's what offered to be in a P.T. Barnum exhibit. And this man makes a contract with the British colonial government in Natal. That's uh, the city in South Africa. And Stormont is brought to the Aquarial Gardens in Boston. He is also even toured around the United States during, this is in 1860 and 1861. Um, He's made to dress up and hold clubs and spears and sing kind of uh, sing songs and do the war and love dances quote unquote, I mean, this is all in this, uh, this promotional pamphlet. Um, and in the local newspapers, there have this kind of uh, try to make up for trafficking in Africans by claiming it's nothing like the slave trade, you know, putting our kind of history hats on. Remember 1860, 61, this is the middle of the secession crisis. Massachusetts is supposed to be a kind of moral leader against slavery. And they are having these really disturbing uh, human zoo-like exhibits in the aquarium. Um, 
And at the end of it, Stormon hangs himself. And it's his story is told all over the newspapers. Um, and his body is given to Harvard's medical school from the Aquarial Gardens. And, you know, we should also note the Aquarial Gardens had given animal specimens, Aquarial Gardens being like an aquarium, animal specimens to um, Harvard's medical school, Harvard faculty, Jeffries Wyman, uh, who ends up being the first, or is by this point, the first curator of the, what's now the Peabody Museum. Um, he dissects Stormon. Uh, he writes a pamphlet comparing Stormon's body to apes. And um, he also, and then they also create uh, six casts of Stormon's head, which still exist and are at Harvard. Um, and they also articulate his skeleton as a teaching tool, which, you know, researchers at Harvard and myself uh, were still trying to find, but have not had any luck. But I think what's so important of the story of Stormon and others like him is that both this, uh, this science had a kind of society-wide disturbing effects of kind of promoting white supremacy, but it was also built on the remains of everyday people around the world who were already found their lives disrupted by the kind of white supremacist forces of colonialism, imperialism, slavery. Um, their lives were already disrupted and then in their kind of final resting place ended up being in a medical school, not in their ancestral lands, not buried as they would have wished. We were pretty confident Stormon had some sort of spiritual beliefs. And it's also worth noting that in African religions, in some African religions, suicide was not seen as an immoral act. Um, so what we see is both the kind of macro and the micro scale in Stormon of, of a global system of violence, a scientific ideology that built to um, justify it. And that this was also just intimately built on human misery in, in a very tragic way. Um, Thanks, Chris. Yeah, it's, um, it it's this, this section, I'm, I thank you for sharing that about the Schomburg Center, because um, I, I was really in awe of how, how you, how you managed to, to tell this history um, in a way that honors the, and, and centers the, the people um, who you're writing about. Um, this brings me to the conclusion of the book, um, which is, I'm just going to quoted here. Um, you conclude that Masters of Health doesn't relate an optimistic story, and there may be little reason to assume that the future of racism and medical education will be very different or better than the past. However, taken at face value, this book does provide a potential blueprint for change. So this is a this is an upbeat ending. Tell us how how can this book provide a, a blueprint for change, Chris? After after so many um, years of of injustice and exploitation. Well, um, I think I think people might find my blueprint for change is a little bit uh, depressing, also. But the 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 book is a at its core is a story of a small cohort of people. We're looking at initially, you know, six faculty members at the University of Pennsylvania, seven at Columbia. Um, a small cohort of people who built institutions, uh, medical schools that rapidly proliferated across the country. And really in this first century, we're saying very, fairly low capital intensive 
uh, it's not, these are not the medical schools of the 20th century, um, that created, built, and instructed tens of thousands of people in an ideology that fundamentally shaped American life and politics. Now, that ideology, in my opinion, and I think my book well illustrates, is a grotesque and disturbing one. But it, you know, the core point is it's the institutions. We need to build institutions, reform institutions that shape the ideology and culture and politics of this country. And that is exactly what the polygenists did. That is exactly what the initial founders of medical schools did, is they built institutions, made them a valuable cornerstone of our country, of our politics, of our healthcare. And in this way, now that it's not an easy blueprint <laughs> in this way, if one wants to create a better world, I, I advocate at the end of the book for, you know, what does racism do? It says there are a separate class of people whose bodies are um, inferior and that their bodies are the cause of their own ill health. Um, so it justifies having two tiered healthcare systems, justifies having un, unequal health outcomes. Um, so on the one hand, I say we need to create institutions that push back and against racialization. And second, we need to address the underlying factors um, that cause inequality um, and that is then used to, to re-bolster these racial ideas. So, and, and for me, that is, you know, at least at the tip of the spear, the first thing is universal health care, universal, not just universal access, but affordable, free, universal, free at the point of service, universal health care, um, to both take away the kind of, the on the one hand, we need to take away the justification for, for, for difference, for inequality. And second, we need to address the inequality itself. Um, and that can only be done, um, and, it, and it's not just from people working inside institutions, but that can only be done through reforming these incredibly powerful, incredibly influential institutions like medical schools. Well, thank you, Chris. That that brings me to our traditional final question, which is after more than a decade um, working on this project, what is next for you? What are you working on next? I don't, uh, I, would it surprise you if I said uh, more uh, of this? I, I couldn't, couldn't leave this history behind. Um, so, when I started, uh, found found the kind of story of, of Stormon, of the, I, I st- and started really studying Harvard Medical School, the Warren Anatomical Museum. I, I I knew I couldn't. I wanted to a, you know, let's hope not. But if this is the only book I ever write, I want this to get out, and it has to be there to to really humanize a story of kind of the inhumanity of of certain people. Um, but I also knew there was a lot bigger story there. Stormont is not the only name in Harvard, the Warren Anatomical Museum's records. It's not the only, um, South Africa is not the only kind of imperial nation or enslaved, enslaver society that's sending human remains to Harvard's medical school. So my, my next project is a global history of the Warren Anatomical Museum at Harvard Medical School through um a series, and I, I think at different times I go back and forth of five or six micro histories that 
uh, of people like Stormont, and one of them will be a, a more uh, drawn out history and a more depthful history of Stormont himself. And, and the real goal of that project is to blend the intim- intimate with global political economy of, of kind of empire enslavement and, co- and kind of global emergent global capitalism and how that shaped people like Stormont's lives, brought their skulls to places like Boston, and once again, um, bolstered these white supremacist ideologies. So in a lot of ways, this second project is the mirror image of the first one, where Masters of Health is all about the medical school, all about training in the metropole, um, uh, or the various metropoles of, of medical education. This is about going into the um, sites of life for people whose skulls were collected, the conflicts that shaped how they got to Harvard Medical School, whether they were killed in their own lands or took their lives in, in, in outside, far away from their home like Stormont did. Um, so very much trying to continue to bring humanity to the story, but also draw to attention, a draw, draw to the forefront a international, further an international set of forces that shaped American racial science. Well, that sounds like a wonderful project and a, a, a great thing to be um, coming out of this work, which is um, sure to be a classic. Um, you, I, you can tell reading it, it's, it should be required reading in um, every medical school in the country. Thank you, Chris, for coming and sharing your work with us today on the New Books Network. We really appreciate the chance to talk to you.